0: a horse and carriage, this I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other, love and marriage. Hello everyone, love welcome to the Stephen marriage. King cast, one man's musings on the it's works of Stephen King. Extent Each extent. week I review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I am turning my attention to the collection of short stories actually specifically novellas in which Stephen King is able to examine the darker aspects of humanity rather than focusing on the external things that go bump in the night. He turns inward and looks to see the the, the worst parts of ourselves with 2010's collection Full Dark, No Stars aptly named by the way Now, my relationship with Full Dark, No Stars is I remember reading it. (laughs) I remember specifically sitting in jury duty, waiting to be called. Um, It had just come out a little while before, and I was reading it, and I knew that it was called Full Dark, No Stars. Clearly, I owned it. Um, And, um, you know, I I read the first story, then I started reading the second story, and I I thought to myself, wow, this this is pretty dark for Stephen King. And then it just clicked. And I said, you idiot. Of course it's dark for Stephen King. The title of the collection is Full Dark, No Stars. It's the absence of hope. He's really going on a dark dive here. And then, you know, then it clicked and I said, "Wow, as a thematic collection, this is this is pretty consistent and he's exploring and mining some 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 dark and uncomfortable emotional truths here, isn't he? So I was very excited to get back to Full Dark No Stars because I don't want to say that I have positive memories uh, because there's really nothing positive about these stories, but they are very, very well done. And you always have to... Uh, I don't know if I talked about this yet. All of this is just becoming beginning to, to blur. But whenever I... <sighs> Try and critique something. I try and critique the the author's intent versus what the author was managed to to do, right? And so his his intent was to explore the worst aspects of ourselves and what happens when we follow the worst aspects of ourselves. And of course, he did it. He did it very very well. Going to review each of the stories included in this collection, and in the meantime, I'm going to read a listener email. Uh, this one's from Quinn. So I think that you all know that I love getting listener email. I think that's important for all of us to be able to share our Stephen King experiences, how we got into the world of Stephen King, what Stephen King means to us. So if you want to share your thoughts, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And don't hesitate to head on over to iTunes to write a review. At, at the moment, I have 50 reviews. I couldn't be any more thrilled than I am. I'm very, very grateful for for all of that. So if you want to contribute to the Stephen King cast, I don't ask for any donations, but you know, if you could throw a, a nice review my, ray, my way, it would, it would go a long way. So with that said, I'm going to get to Quinn's, um, Quinn's email. So dear Mr. Stephen King cast, just got done listening to the Insomnia reviews and I wanted to shed some light on why I think people tend to not like this book. Like you said, there's a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up, and I think that's because this book didn't know what it wanted it to be. Did it want to be about abortion, the Tower, Clotho and Lachesis, or any of the plot points in the book? It's hard to tell because they feel smashed together and parts of different stories instead of one unified whole. Honestly, I think a big reason for the hate of this book is it was just a reason for Stephen King to try and justify the Patrick Danville deus ex machina that pissed everyone off. It takes a long, often boring time for this book to get going. I mean, it's about an old guy not sleeping, you know? I know that's not fair because that's not all it's about, but a large chunk is. This book was a little too crazy. It's like it took all these crazy ideas King had and put them into one book, which makes the book messy and a little confusing. Also, some more crazy parts sound stupid to some people, as you said, with flying grandmas turning to catfish, traveling through porta-potties, stabbing the Crimson King with earrings, etc., this book seemed like a big, slow-moving mess to me, although some parts really shine. Keep up the good work, Quinn. Quinn, thanks for writing in. I think this is why it's important for people to write in, because if you listen to my review of Insomnia, you know that I love this book, and I, I can't agree with Quinn. But it's important for for Quinn and you know others out there to be able to share their opinions and their thoughts. Um, so if you agree with Quinn, if you don't agree with Quinn, feel free to write in, and I will share your thoughts on air okay guys so i'm gonna get to my review of full dark no stars um the the first story is 1922 and i will read the wikipedia summary 1922 is a first person account by Wilfred james the story's unreliable narrator he writes a lengthy confession for the murder of his wife arlette in hemingford home nebraska in 1922 Wilfred owns 80 acres of farmland that have been in his family for generations. His wife owns an adjoining 100 acres willed to her by her father. Wilfred scorns the thought of living in a city, but Arlette is discontented with farm life and wants to move to Omaha. She seeks to sell her land to a livestock company for use as a pig farm and slaughterhouse. Wilfred, who strongly opposes Arlette's plans, resorts to manipulating his teenage son Henry into helping him murder his own mother. As part of their plot, Wilfred and Henry get Arlette drunk. Arlette proceeds to make crude remarks about Henry's girlfriend, Shannon Coterie, which angers the boy enough to commit to Wilfred's plot. After taking Arlette to bed, Wilfred brutally slashes her throat with a butcher knife. Wilfred and Henry then dump the body in a well behind the barn. Later, as Wilfred dumps his blood-soaked mattress into the well with Arlette, he notices that her body has become infested with rats. Wilfred decides to fill in the well to hide the body, but knows that doing so will arouse suspicion. He purposefully has one of his aged cows fall in a well to provide a cover story for filling in. Right afterwards, the local sheriff, acting on behalf of the livestock company, searches the farmhouse to look for Arlette, finding nothing. Wilfred and Henry fill the well, but a rat crawls out of the soil. Henry kills it, believing that Arlette is now haunting them. Wilfred later... (laughs) encounters a rat when it attacks one of his other cows, severing one of her teats. A few months later, Henry, who has now become emotionally troubled since the murder, impregnates Shannon. The pregnancy sours the relationship between Wilfred and Shannon's father, Harlan, a neighboring farmer. Shannon is sent to a Catholic school for pregnant girls in Omaha, but Henry helps her escape. They begin a highly publicized career as a pair of Bonnie and Clyde-styled bank robbers, becoming wanted in several states. Wilfred becomes emotionally destitute in Henry's absence. He again encounters the rat from the barn, which bites Wilfred's hand and causing it to become severely infected, necessitating its amputation. Soon after, Wilfred claims that Arlette's living corpse, accompanied by a large group of rats, leaves the confines of the well and enters the farmhouse, confronting him. Arlette gives a detailed premonition of the violent demise of Henry and the still-pregnant Shannon in Nevada. Soon afterwards, the roof to Wilfred's house caves in during a storm. When Artlett's prophecy comes true, Wilfred tries to sell the land parcel he killed her for. However, Harlan and the townspeople, all disgusted with Wilfred, refuse to help him. He is forced to leave Hemingford home as a pariah after selling the land to the livestock company for a pittance. He moves to Omaha and spends the first two years visiting the scenes of Henry's crimes and drinking away the money he received from selling the land. He finds two jobs, as a garment factory worker and a librarian. He quits both, he claims, when the rats begin to stalk him again. Wilfred sits in a hotel room in Omaha, writing down his story and claiming that Arlette, Henry, and Shannon, along with the rats, are present. Wilfred plans to commit suicide before the rats consume him, but apparently misplaces his gun. The story ends with a newspaper clipping about Wilfred's death stating that he was found with bike marks that appear to be self-inflicted, which leaves the reader to speculate about Wilfred's account was true or delusional. Wilfred's papers are found to be illegible, having been chewed to pieces. Um, okay, so analysis. I'm going to read you page three. So, I mean, he really puts it out there, I would say. To whom it may concern... My name is Wilfred Leland James, and this is my confession. In June of 1922, I murdered my wife, Arlette Christina Winters James, and hid her body by dumping it down an old well. My son, Henry Freeman James, aided me in this crime, though he, at 14, was not responsible. I cozened him into it, playing upon his fears and beating down his quite normal objections over a period of two months. This is a thing that I regret more bitterly than the crime for reasons this document will show. So... The tone of this book is both dark and delivers a chuckle as our narrator, a man who killed his wife, insults the city of Omaha and compares it to hell. King, through Wilfred, begins to tell this nasty little story of the divide and war games of this family, both parents engaging in power plays against each other, and early on it's clear that their son Henry is a pawn in Wilfred's game against his wife. He drives the wedge between mother and son, pushing both of them closer to the moment where Arlette is murdered. The novella itself is a frightening black mirror to divorce cases all over the U.S. King does not portray any of these characters in anything resembling a sympathetic light. Every comment that comes out of Wilf's mouth about his wife is a negative one, and because this story is told through his perspective, who knows what she was really like? I mean, right before she dies, she's presented as a foul-mouthed, obnoxious, distasteful, lecherous drunk. Every aspect of her character is foul. Is this the true Arlette, how Wilfred saw Arlette, or simply a depiction he's trying to convey to us um, just so that the reader will side with him? As if we'll say, of course you did it, you had to do it, she was just awful. But there's nothing that Wilf can say to convince us to see things through this perspective. The murder of Arlette is among the most horrific things that Stephen King has ever written. Not necessarily because of the description, but because of the context and the situation itself. This isn't a telepathic bully pushed too far. A husband and father possessed by a malicious spirit, or a shapeshifting clown, or any sort of devil or monster that we've seen before. This is a father and son brutally murdering a woman, the husband's wife, the son's mother. Stripped of any supernaturalism, the murder is sloppy, it's ugly, and painful. In less than 20 pages, King has set a high watermark mark for the dark and harsh places this collection will go. He does not attempt to stylize any aspect of the murder, during it or after. Like Wilf thinks, murder is work. And if things couldn't get any more gruesome, the rats get to her. With the murder itself taking place so early in the story, King can then spend the rest of his time ruminating on the fallout, what it does to each of them, slowly turning the characters over in his hands and watching them as they change from their atrocious crime. And if you wonder why they don't just fill the well, King teases it out, Wilf waiting for the right moment when he uses Elphis the cow, named after the goddess of hope locked in Pandora's box, as a reason to fill in the well after she makes her fall. They're able to begin to move on with their life, but the ghost of Arlette hangs over, <clears throat> hangs heavy over them and lives on in the rats who burrow out of the earth and attack their livestock. Things just get worse as Henry gets his girlfriend Shannon pregnant, and after she's sent away, he runs off. His absence a huge variable, a giant wild card in Wilfred's plans. With Henry gone, we start getting word of robberies, and Wilfred, our narrator, teases the Bonnie and Clyde style relationship his son and daughter-in-law would soon create for themselves all the while king creating a growing sense of isolation for n for henry who has the house he killed for but no family to share it with only the rats it's one rat in particular who nearly kills him infecting his hand which balloons in size and without a telephone or a truck he might as well be stuck on an island And though there's no no true supernaturalism in the novel, King plays with the imagery of Wilf's dead wife in a truly horrific scene, which we get on page 100 to 101. I woke from a doze in front of the stove the following night and heard the rustling, scuttering sounds again. At first I assumed it had recommenced sleeting, but when I got up to tear a chunk of bread from the hardening loaf on the counter, I saw a thin orange sunset streak on the horizon and Venus glowing in the sky. The storm was over, but the scuttering sounds were louder than ever. They weren't coming from the walls, however, but from the back porch. The door latch began moving. At first it only trembled, as if the hand trying to operate it was too weak to lift entirely clear of the notch. The movement ceased, and I had just decided that I hadn't seen it at all, that it was a delusion born of the fever. When it all went the way up with a little clack sound and the door swung open on the cold breath of wind. Standing on the porch was my wife. She was still wearing her burlap snood, now flecked with snow. It must have been a slow and painful journey from what should have been her final resting place. Her face was slack with decay. The lower half slewed to one side, her grin wider than ever. It was a knowing grin, and why not? The dead understand everything. She was surrounded by her loyal court. It was that they had somehow gotten her out of the well... It was they that were holding her up. Without them, she would have been no more than a ghost, malevolent but helpless, but they had animated her. She was their queen. She was also their puppet. She came into the kitchen, moving with a horribly boneless gait that had nothing to do with walking. The rats scurried all around her, some looking up at her with love, some at me with hate. She swayed all the way around the kitchen, touring what had been her domain as clods from the the skirt of her dress. And her head bobbed and rolled on her cut throat once it tilted back all the way to her shoulder blades before snapping forward again with a low and fleshy smacking sound when she at last turned her cloudy eyes on me i backed into the corner where the wood box stood now almost empty leave me alone i whispered you aren't even here you're in the well and you can't get out even if you're not dead you okay She made a gurgling noise. It sounded like someone choking on thick gravy and kept coming, real enough to cast a shadow. And I could smell her decaying flesh, this woman who had sometimes put her tongue in my mouth during the throes of her passion. She was there. She was real. So was her royal retinue. I could feel them scurrying back and forth over my feet and tickling my ankles with their whiskers as they sniffed at the bottoms of my long john trousers. My heels struck the wood box, and when I tried to bend away from the approaching corpse, I overbalanced and sat down in it. I banged my swollen, "'An infected hand, but hardly registered the pain. "'She was bending over me, and her face dangled. "'The flesh had come loose from the bones, "'and her face hung down like a face drawn on a child's balloon. "'A rat climbed the side of the wood box, "'plopped onto my belly, ran up to my chest, "'and sniffed at the underside of my chin. "'I could feel the others scurrying around beneath my bent knees, "'but they didn't bite me. "'That particular task had already been accomplished.' She bent closer. The smell of her was overwhelming and her cocked ear-to-ear grin. I can see it now as I write. I told myself to die, but my heart kept on pounding. Her face slid alongside mine. I could feel my beard stubble pulling off tiny bits of her skin. Could hear her broken jaw grinding like a branch with ice on it. Then her cold lips were pressed against the burning, feverish cup of my ear, and she began whispering secrets that only a dead woman could know. I shrieked. I promised to kill myself and take her place in hell if she would only stop. But she didn't. She wouldn't. The dead don't stop. That's what I know now. The visitation of his dead wife, brought on by the infection of the the rat bite, provides updates of Henry's whereabouts. It is a great, morbid, haunting moment. King flashes in and out of future events. As Henry's escapades become legendary, moments later set in stone with Henry himself taking on a mythic quality as we learn of him through those he interacted with. Excuse me, Hank, not Henry. We knew Henry. Hank is someone that we learn of through the retelling of others. For a novella that began with the gruesome murder of a wife and mother, I don't think any of us expected it would dovetail into a story of young lovers turned outlaws as the murderous father has to pick up the pieces of his life after his son is killed. And the sweetheart's ultimate fate is unromantic. It's sad, it's messy. I've been thinking about how King, I've been thinking about King and and how he does this lately. I've been thinking back to a scene in The Stand with a shootout between Stu and Franny, Harold and Ralph, and the monsters that are keeping Susan prisoner. The shootout is so messy, it's almost comedic, but why shouldn't it be? Who says that shootouts or ending have to be taken from a well-choreographed action movie? King gave us a series of endings in The Dark Tower that did not bring closure or satisfaction. They come unexpectedly, and at times, pointlessly. In real life, when death comes, it rarely comes with a nice, neat little bow. So here, the ugly, sloppy takedown of the Sweetheart Bandits is very true to life. It shouldn't be glorified. It's the murder of murderers. Their murder is presented as a vision, brought by Arlette, the Rat Queen, and then later Wilfred realizes that he hasn't been arrested by the police for her murder. But King teases his ultimate fate, as he reminds us that Wilf is telling the story in a hotel room that is starting to fill with rats. The story concludes wonderfully, well, wonderfully horrific. There are two endings. First, the conclusion to Wilf's narrative, and the button tacked on, a newspaper account that states he has bitten himself to death. First, let me read the ending as described by Wilf himself. So on page 130, um, we get, And here I have been ever since, spending the money I have saved as a librarian, which doesn't matter any longer, and writing my confession, which does. One of them has just nipped me on the ankle, as if to say, get on with it, time's almost up. A little bit of blood has begun to stain my sock. It doesn't disturb me, not in the slightest. I have seen more blood in my time. In 1922, there was a room filled with it. And now I think I hear, is it my imagination? No. Someone has come visiting. I plugged the pipe, but the rats still escaped. I filled in the well, but she also found her way out. And this time, I don't think she's alone. I think I hear two sets of shuffling feet, not just one, or three? Is it three? Is it the girl who would have been my daughter-in-law in a better world with them as well? I think she is... Three corpses shuffling up the hall, their faces, what remains of them, disfigured by rat bites, are lets cocked to one side as well by the kick of a dying cow. Another bite on the ankle, and another. How the management would... Ow! Another. But they won't have me, and my visitors won't either. Although now I can see the doorknob turning, I can smell them, the remaining flesh hanging on their bones, giving off the stench of slaughtered slot gun. God, where is this? Stop! Or oh, make them stop biting! It's good. It's a good ending, guys. It really is. I love the fact that he, in the end, he's literally writing, Oh make them stop biting me. Um So there's two ways of looking at this. You know, first, you know, Wilf is the one who had been telling this story, and clearly he's haunted by his actions, whether the haunting is supernatural or the manifestation of his own guilt. So if he's haunted to lunacy, can we believe that his statements when he describes his visitation from the rat queen Arlette or the rats themselves? Or is he honestly being haunted by his wife and her rat army? Either way, guys, it's a dark, dark story. Foul through and through. Um, so we have some Easter eggs here. Hemmingford home. This mean little story takes place in the hometown of Mother Abigail and Ben Hanscom from It. Wikipedia pointed out that it was also the setting of uh, the short story The Last Rung on the Ladder. And in terms of Stephen King-isms, we have Dumping a Body Down a Well, which we've seen before, uh, most famously in Dolores Claiborne. Uh, the Death of a Child, uh, which we have seen in Pet Cemetery, Revival, Cujo, and others. And Marriage. Um... You know, King has written about marriage on numerous occasions in Lisey's story, Pet Cemetery, Bag of Bones, and um, a good marriage, which we'll get to later in this collection. And so next uh, up, we have Big Driver. Now, I think... um, Hold on one second. No, actually, let me read the Wikipedia summary. So Tess is a cozy mystery writer who has a speaking engagement at a library in Chickabee, Massachusetts. After the event, the librarian who had invited her, Ramona Norville, tells Tess to avoid Interstate 84. She gives Tess the directions to Stag Road, a presumably safer shortcut to Tess's home in Connecticut. However, on the shortcut, Tess's Ford Expedition rolls over nail-studded pieces of wood which lie across the road, giving her a flat tire. The incident happens by an abandoned Esso gas station. Shortly afterwards, a big man. Tess guesses he's 6'6", and a pickup offers to assist Tess. At first, the trucker seems to be eager to help, but soon he darkens. Tess realizes that the driver had set out the road hazard he knocks tess out and proceeds to brutally rape and beat her before finally choking her to unconsciousness she later wakes up and feigns death as he stashes her body in a culvert and drives away after the man has left tess escapes but sees several other murdered women Uh, All victims of the same man lying dead in the pipe. Tess escapes to try to find some help, but as she walks, she worries that the attack will create a scandal. She believes that people would write that she was asking for it, and her name as an author would be dragged through the mud. She decides that she cannot mentally endure another trauma and decides to go home without telling anyone. The next day, while recovering her vehicle at a bar called the Stagger Inn, a place near the abandoned Esso station, Tess speaks with Betsy who works at the bar. Tess fabricates a story about her injuries, but describes her assailant to Betsy. Betsy asks, was he big or real big? Betsy then tells Tess that a man called Big Driver matches Tess's description. Tess decides to use the detective skills she acquired while writing her novels to find her rapist, Big Driver. Tess discovers that the Big Driver's mother is the librarian Ramona Norville, who had given her the directions to Stag Road, and deduces that Ramona intentionally directed her to the trap laid down by Big Driver. Tess goes to Norville's home, and after confirming that Norville was indeed guilty of directing Tess into the trap, kills Norville. She finds Big Driver's address and goes to his house. She lies in wait and shoots Big Driver after he arrives home. It's only after that he is dead that Tess determines that Big Driver is... The even larger older brother of the man who really raped her a man referred to as little driver stunned tess nevertheless drives to little driver's house and kills him unsure of big driver's involvement in her rape and overcome with the guilt over possibly having murdered an innocent man she writes out a confession and prepares to kill herself at the last moment however she decides to go back to big driver's house to look for evidence and in fact, she finds the purse taken from her the night of her rape, confirming Big Driver's complicity in her rape. Tess comes to terms with her sins and goes home, finally beginning to feel peace. Analysis. So, like I said earlier, um, I had started reading Full Dark, No Stars, didn't quite realize that Full Dark, No Stars meant we're gonna, I'm going to be reading a, a dark collection of stories. And I think that it was during this story where I said to myself, wow, these two stories are pretty dark. And then I realized that I was reading a collection entitled, like I said, Full Dark, No Stars. You know, as I was sitting there in jury duty, I just felt like I almost like thunked myself in the forehead uh, with my palm when I realized that. Uh, But anyway, so with this story, King introduces us to Tess, her station as a writer. Um, And this is, as far as I know, the first time that... King has focused on a writer's side of public speaking gigs outside of no nope, no nope, I take that back I take that back um, Lisey's story Lacy's story has a very important um, scene in which Scott is is speaking at uh, speaking engagement so minutes um, so within just a couple pages King shapes his latest protagonist writer the borderline meek, the sensible Tess, before teasing that something bad is soon about to happen to her. And this something bad includes her lying in a culvert, coughing out blood from her swollen mouth and nose. When Tess arrives in Chicopee, Mass., she's met by the librarian, Ramona Norville, who gives her a better Rook back and asks if she has GPS. Like I mentioned in my review of Cell, I discussed how that novel is a snapshot of rapidly dated technology so similarly the reference to uh the gps TomTom, specifically already feels outdated when everybody has a gps on their smartphones and this was only published in 2010 and as i say this that's only five years ago that's insane anyway as she heads back home she takes the shortcut given to her from ramona which takes her through scenic Western Mass roads. One in particular, which will serve as the nightmarish setting for her rape. Her car bounces over rusty nails, ripping apart her tires. Now, in real life, if you were to, uh, if you're to open up your phone on a back street in Western Mass, unless you're in the boonies of the Berkshires, you're gonna get service. Not for tests, though. Um, And this is not a geographical error on his part. It's merely an issue that cell phones have created for fiction. It's hard to create tension when the potential victim has a safety line on them at all times. So the only real solution an author has is either to have the cell phone break or to simply have no service. She's soon visited by the pickup driver, and immediately she's wary. For one, she's a petite woman on a strange stretch of road, and he's a giant and then she realizes that she spots the same pieces of wood in the flatbed of his truck. Before she has time to react, the driver is upon her, and the threat level goes from 0 to 10 in a heartbeat. There's no buildup, and King doesn't add any literary flourish to what happens to Tess. She's brutally raped, almost murdered, and shoved into a pipe because the idiot rapist thinks that she's dead. Brutalized and beaten, she staggers her way to town, ducking out of view each time she sees a car approaching. During the walk, she realizes that the old Tess has been replaced by a new Tess. The novella then shifts from a story of the victimized, the horror story, to a story of revenge. There's something so juicy about a revenge story. When a character has been victimized like Tess has been, it's okay for us to want more for her than just safety. It's okay for us to want for her to revenge. The revenge story is the safe place for us to project our angriest fantasies, and in this case, the victim becomes our martyr, suffering for us so that we might ultimately feel fulfillment from the justice he or she enacts. In order for the revenge to feel just, we have to experience the suffering of our character. Now, keep in mind that obviously we aren't supposed to like what happens to the character. And I would say that King presents both the rape and the aftermath with descriptive clarity, and though I have no point of personal connection to it, I would compliment him on his emotional authenticity, how he handles the situation. I tend to keep these podcast reviews as PG as I can, but I feel in the case of Big Driver, I need to point out the effectiveness of a phrase he uses to show the ugh, the lingering effects of the rape. King has to illustrate that just because she's escaped the immediate threat, she still hasn't really escaped. Um, not emotionally, not spiritually, or physically, as she can still feel his essence inside her, an essence which King describes grotesquely as cock slime. It's disgusting. And it should be disgusting. With this simple use of diction, King completely captures the overwhelming sense of violation. The paranoia and fear that pervades Tess's life is both palpable and justifiable. I mean, how could she approach the car without fear that her return to Stag Road without thinking that it was a setup for the driver to lure her back in and finish her off? Yet she isn't afraid enough to start working the bartender of the establishment where her car is located for information on the driver, Big Driver, and Tess's quick wit allows for her to extract enough information to begin her revenge. And this revenge soon extends not just to the Big Driver, but Ramona the librarian as well, who she discovers is the rapist's mother. And it's Ramona, who she first puts in her um, crosshairs. King ups the tension, with Tess doubting that Ramona is behind the, the whole situation. And then she spots her missing diamond earrings. This confirmation distracts her, which gives Ramona enough of a moment to take advantage. There's a great moment of tension, and although Ramona has the gun, Tess has the upper hand and manages to stab the orchestrator of her torment. The revenge on Ramona is the most thrilling of the revenge murders, which is followed by the murder of one son, which is also who is also in on it before the final murder of the Big Driver, who was shot in the head during an episode of Seinfeld, funnily enough, the one about George's shrinkage problem after having been in the pool. So this is just So the the first story in the collection was just a very, very dark examination about a family and the secrets and the the secret selves, the um what King called the conniving man, um, and, and and the horror that can rot upon the family. And this is a story that really deals with just the revenge fantasy and what happens when we are thoroughly violated and we have cause to to seek out revenge. What happens? And it goes from the the lowest aspects of humanity with the, 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 the rape itself to I guess what I would call the contradictory um, high low of a revenge. Like, we're rooting for her to go and just slaughter a bunch of people who deserve it. Um, And when King is able to elicit this emotion within us, he's bringing us down. Um, Purposefully, purposefully. Like, I mean, this is not him rising us up to the highest heights of emotion and optimism like he does in let's say Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, where it's we have been brought down by society and we can beat it and we can escape and we can revel in the glories of our 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 victory over the establishment. No, that that's not what happens here. Is we have been brought down and he keeps us down. And all that we have in this moment is to just celebrate these atrocities which we can commit. And because these are the this is the best it can be at this point that really does say something. So again, with two stories in, King is building a very very dark dark collection. And now I want to get to the uh, <coughs> Stephen Kingisms. isms uh, the first of which is the writer. So Tess is uh, the latest in a long line of writers that have populated Stephen King stories. The second is Happy Crappy. Um, and the driver asked Tess if she picked that Happy Crappy off the road. This has been seen before in The Stand with the character of the kid. And here's the thing, guys. I'm going to be very, very honest. In my notes, um, oh, I, I think I, I screwed up a little bit. My Stephen Kingisms and Easter eggs, I kind of combined the Stephen Kingisms and the Easter eggs for Big Driver and Fair Extension, the story that I'm going to review next. So when I say this, the catchphrase, you likes it, it likes you, at the top of my head, I can't remember whether or not that has anything to do with. Big Driver or Fair Extension. Um, <clears throat> so that's it. That That's all that I got, I, I hope, for, um, for Big Driver, which brings us to Fair Extension. Wikipedia. On his way home in Derry, Maine, Dave Streeter sees a man with a setup by the road to the airport. He goes out and talks with the man, George Elvid, who tells Streeter that he sells extensions of various types. Elvid claims to have existed for centuries. In parentheses, Elvid's name is an anagram of the word devil. Elvid offers Streeter, who suffers from terminal lung cancer, a chance to live for approximately 15 years if he pays off 15% of his salary for every one of those years and transfers the weight of his misfortune onto someone he knows. Elvid emphasizes that it has to be someone that Streeter truly hates. Streeter selects Tom Goodhue, his best friend since childhood, whom he has secretly hated for years. Streeter has done everything for Goodhue, who has taken Streeter for granted the entire time. Goodhue got straight A's, with Streeter doing his homework throughout their formative years. Later, Goodhue stole Streeter's girlfriend in college and married her. Goodhue eventually founded a successful million-dollar waste removal business with Streeter's assistance, and now lives in a lavish lifestyle with a big house, has three children on the fast track to great lives, and does not look like age has caught up with him. Unlike his friend Streeter, a couple of days later, Streeter goes to his doctor, who tells him his tumors are shrinking. Four months later, Streeter has been declared cancer-free, which perplexes his doctor. The good luck continues in subsequent years as Streeter is promoted several times at work and his marriage becomes joyous and rich with significant lifestyle improvements. His children begin a long line of career successes. His son creates two best-selling video games and his daughter gets her dream job as a journalist at the Boston Globe after graduating from the Columbia School of Journalism. At the same time, Good Goodhue's misfortunes start to surface when his company goes broke after the accountant embezzles all the money in skips town. His wife dies six months after being diagnosed with breast cancer. His middle son, Carl, a star athlete, has a heart attack in college and, due to oxygen depri- deprivation, suffers permanent brain damage and becomes an invalid who requires constant care. His youngest son, Jake, turns down an athletic scholarship to help To help save the failing garbage business, which is eventually shut down by the EPA for radioactive contaminants. His daughter Gracie loses her husband to a drunk driver, loses all her teeth after developing uh, pariah pyoria and eventually gives birth to a stillborn baby carl chokes to death due to neglect after goodhue is no longer able to avoid his personal caretaker and jake is sentenced to prison after killing his wife goodhue suffers mentally as well as physically from the stress developing both gout uh, psoriasis and major weight loss a broken man who barely has enough money to keep himself heated for the winter goodhue likens himself to job and believes that he has offended god Although Streeter pretends to be solemn about his friend's misfortunes, he is secretly glad and enjoys seeing Goodhue struggle to cope with his family's misfortune. Streeter's family uh, prospers during this time as Goodhue struggles, and he enjoys his life more than ever. Uh, The story ends with Streeter and his wife stargazing. She confesses her sadness over Goodhue's fate, and he assures her that this is only fair and that some people are simply dealt a bad hand by life. They catch a glimpse of the planet Venus and Streeter tells his wife to make a wish. She cannot think of anything they need due to the prosperous um, past few years. The story ends with Streeter making a single wish for more. Analysis. Right away we find that we are again not only in Derry, Maine, but along the extension by the airport where Ralph Roberts had first come across Ed Deepno in the pages of Insomnia. Our main character, Streeter, meets the devil. It's as simple as that, and King does not try to hide this from us. I mean, the character's name is Elvid, after all. Still, I'll always be disappointed that he isn't named Leland Gaunt. Anyway, the reader... Uh, Should be able to guess what happens here a man with cancer meets a character whose name is an anagram of the devil What do you think is going to happen? What's so funny here is that King focuses on a very specialized aspect of soul trading here And it comes down to the prospect of extension Elvid will only sell an extension not a reduction like he says to Streeter if you want that you'll have to go elsewhere Now King has already told his masterpiece on the art of the deal which dealt with the selling of souls. But this is more in line with the postmodern analysis of the nature of evil, specifically the evil we saw represented by the characters of Algil Sientel and the Dark Tower, who are not faceless boogeymen, but blue-collar workers just trying to do their jobs. Is, is is the same type of character, offering Streeter an extension not for his soul, but for his money. And then he reveals his hatred for his best friend, Streeter, um, who long ago stole his girlfriend, married her, and lives happily with three children. King is still laying the groundwork, uh, and it just keeps getting juicier. It isn't as simple as Streeter hating his life or his wife. He's very much in love. But now that it's clear that he's treading a slippery slope, and the joy is going to come from watching him slide all the way down the mountain, the question is, will it be bumpy or smooth? And for Streeter, the ride is blackly smooth. This is not a morality tale where the sinner is punished. Instead, he's rewarded beyond measure, while the good folk are the ones who are punished. It is bleak. Very, very bleak. Um, This is a story all about not appreciating what you have and just always wanting more and in 2015 and when this comes out it's going to be 2016 so in 2016 america we're always going to want more it's as it's just it's what it is that's that's life um and king is commenting on that right now i mean the 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 progression of time is is marked by the news stories of celebrities um, as if Streeter is now one of the elite or that he sees the rest of the world and the, the pain of his best friend with the detached feelings as he would as if he was reading about the celebrities. And this is, um, and I can speak about this because I just read it, so here's a little bit of a, a glimpse. I mean, and I feel like this is reinforced. Excuse me, that's my Godzilla ringtone. Oh, I think that my food has arrived. okay um <clears throat> so i'm back uh it was my food and my food came and i've eaten it and then i i am back recording uh so anyway as i was saying um i feel as though the the the, the celebrity piece uh can be re- was reinforced very recently in the short story found within bizarre of bad dreams bits. where king is commenting on our uh our our culture and our relationship with the the celebrity analysis and examination and our relationship with celebrities and how we obsess over them and i think that that has a foot in this particular story as well <clears throat> so anyway uh to our stephen king isms we have oh hold on she's got something hey Okay, I'm back. I'm sorry. She just... She loves her her toilet paper. Um, anyway, for our Stephen Kingisms, isms uh, we have The Peddler. Now, George Elvid is the latest in a line of peddlers that we have seen in Stephen King universe, uh, the most famous of which being Leland Gaunt, but uh, from a mythological standpoint, The Peddler is one of the phases of the moon, as found within the Dark Tower saga as well. Number five. Um, The villainous character having sharp teeth. Um, This goes back, far, far back in the Stephen King mythology where his villains tend to have sharp teeth. We've seen that with uh, the clown Pennywise in It. We've seen that with um, Randall Flagg, I believe. We have seen that with... um, André Linoge in Storm of the Century and the Man in the Black Suit in the the short story by the same name found within the Everything's Eventual collection. And clown imagery. Uh, Elvid, at one point, is referred to as a clown without his makeup on, and that, I believe, is a reference to Pennywise the Dancing Clown specifically because this particular short story is set within Derry, Maine, the setting for King's most, um, uh, maybe not famous, but I think that is his best examination on the horror genre. And in terms of Easter eggs, we have Inside View, um, although I believe that the Easter eggs for this, for East, for Inside View was found within Big Driver, uh, to be perfectly honest, if I can remember correctly. Um, But Inside View is a tabloid um, that was first introduced in the pages of the Dead Zone way back when, um, and then explored a little bit more thoroughly in the Nightmares and Dreamscapes short story, uh, Nightflyer. Number two, we have Derry. So, like I said earlier in my review, in fair extension, it takes place within Derry, Derry, Maine, the setting of... Most famously, It, and then Insomnia. And it takes place actually along the the same stretch of road that uh, kicked off the beginning of Insomnia. Number three, Juniper Hill. Juniper Hill is the mental institution that was first referred to in It and whose character, Henry Bowers, uh, was living before he was broken out by the clown. Number four, Denbro. Who is the Mrs. Denbro that Streeter refers to? This is a, a great little question mark that hangs in um, Fair Extension. Because um, at one point, there is a reference to a Mrs. Denbro, and I need to figure out who it is. Is it Audra Denbro? Has Bill and his wife returned to Derry, Maine? That's a great question. And long days and pleasant nights. Um, I just wrote that. I'm not sure exactly what the context is, but I believe that Elvid probably says long days and pleasant nights, and that is a reference to a um, a Midworld phrase as seen in the Dark Tower saga. Okay, um, so now I'm going to speak about a good marriage. <clears throat> Darcy Anderson has been married to Bob a Portland, Maine, accountant for 27 years. They have a happy yet humdrum relationship, running a mail-order business, selling and appraising rare coins. One night, while Bob is away on business, Darcy goes in the garage to search for batteries. When she rummages through Bob's belongings, she stumbles across a pornographic magazine showing a sadomasochistic image. Unnerved by the magazine, and the fact that it's in Bob's possession... Darcy finds a secret compartment behind the garage's baseboard and makes a more horrific discovery, a small box containing the ID cards of Marjorie Duval, a victim of a serial killer called Beattie. Bob calls Darcy and senses her distress. She lies about the reason for her anxiety. Afterwards, she Googles BD and cross-checks Bob's business records with the locations of the murders, finding that Bob was in close proximity to most of the crimes. When Darcy wakes up the next morning, she finds that Bob has deduced her discovery and returns home early. He proceeds to calmly explain his insanity to his horrified wife, recounting how he and a sadistic friend named Brian Delaney, or... Delahanty, nicknamed Beattie, from which Beattie's name was derived, planned a school shooting as teenagers. Uh, Delaney was hit by a truck before he could carry it out, but Bob claims that he had infected him with certain ideas, resulting in his homicidal urges. Bob claims that Darcy married him, and while they were raising their children, his murderous alter ego receded, and he was not driven to kill again for several years. He pleads to Darcy to put the matter behind him for the sake of herself and her family. After mulling it over, Darcy feigns an agreement to do so on the condition that he buried Duval's ID cards deep in the woods. Bob believes Darcy has put the truth behind her when, in fact, she is trying to think of a way to stop him from killing again. A few months after Darcy's discoveries, an elated Bob finds a rare 1955 double-dice scent, and the couple goes out to Portland to celebrate. When Bob becomes drunk from the champagne, Darcy devises a plan to murder him. Upon, der- upon arriving home, Darcy has Bob fetch some Perrier while she waits for him upstairs ostensibly for sex. However, when Bob arrives, Darcy pushes him down the stairs, breaking his arm, neck, and back. She then manages to shove a plastic bag and dishcloth down his throat, killing him. After removing the evidence of murder, Darcy manages to convince the authorities and the children that Bob died in a drunken accident and isn't suspected of committing any foul play. Darcy assumes the ordeal is over. However, not long after Bob is buried, a retired detective named Holt Ramsey visits the house. Ramsey spent years investigating the Beattie murders and had questioned Bob after the death of another victim, Stacy Moore, who worked at a restaurant that Bob frequented on his business trips. Ramsey tells Darcy that he suspected Bob was the killer since his Chevrolet Suburban was seen in the vicinity of each victim. Darcy realizes that Ramsey... Uh, figured out her role in Bob's death. Once she admits the truth, Ramsey assures her that she did the right thing and leaves. Before he does, she tells him about Delante. Darcy realizes that Bob was close to being caught and wasn't as smart as he thought he was. She also finds that she can now be at peace with herself. Now, this novel has a great opening, which can be found on page 283. The one thing nobody asked in casual conversation, Darcy thought, in the days after she found what she found in the garage was this. How's your marriage? They asked, how was your weekend? And how was your trip to Florida? And how's your health? And how are the kids? They even asked, how's life been treating you, hun? But nobody asked, how's your marriage? You know, first, it's a wonderful observation. And secondly, it has a built-in hook. What's in the garage? King teases the mystery and the dread very early on, recounting Darcy's initial meeting and road to marriage with Bob Anderson, and at one point mentions how his teeth, small, even white teeth, would later cause her to shudder. Again, less than two pages in, we're moved along the conveyor belt of mystery. As the title suggests, this is an examination of marriage, specifically the secrets that come with every marriage. King has always had a relationship with his audience, so if if he's examining the concept of marriage, he writes the story in such a way that the reading experience is a marriage itself between the author and the reader. As I mentioned, he's going to explore the secrets that come along with every marriage and those secrets he builds in early on with the mysteries he sprinkles in the garage, the teeth, but those are the dark secrets intertwined in the narrative is the everyday secrets of marriage, annoying but harmless, of Darcy's discovery of Bob's hair formula um, to ineffectively combat his middle-aged balding. Already while examining the concepts of secrets inside a marriage, King also has touched upon the theme he needs to explore in this novella in order for it to work, and that's compromise. Darcy mentions this very early on and the intertwining of the dark secrets and the light ones begin to form the compromise of the marriage that will be forevermore changed upon Darcy's discovery of Bob's true hobby and King gives us the thesis of secrets on and compromise on page 288 to 289 as he builds towards that Discovery. The sight of a crossword book on his knees glimpsed through the half-open bathroom door as he sat on the commode. The smell of cologne on his cheeks, which meant that the suburban would be gone from the driveway for a day or two and his side of the bed would be empty for a night or two because he had to straighten out someone's accounting in New Hampshire or Vermont. Sometimes the smell meant a trip to look at someone's coin collection and an estate sale, because not all buying and selling that went with their side business could be accomplished by computer. They both understood that. The sight of his old black suitcase, the one he would never give up no matter how much she nagged in the front hall. His slippers at the end of the bed, one always tucked into the other. The glass of water on his end table with the oramin, the orange vitamin pill next to it. On that month's issue of coin and currency collecting, Holly always said, more room out there than there is in after belching. Look out, gas attack, after he farted. His coat on the first hook in the hall. The reflection of his toothbrush in the mirror. He would still be using the same one he'd had when they got married, Darcy believed, if she didn't regularly replace it. The way he dabbed his lips with his napkin after every second or third bite of food, the careful arrangement of camping gear, always including an extra compass, before he and Stan set out with another bunch of nine year olds on the hike up Dead Man's Trail, a dangerous and terrifying trek that took them through the woods behind the Golden Grove Mall and came out at Weinberg's used car city. The look of his nails, always short and clean, the taste of dentine on his breath when they kissed. These things and a 10,000 others comprised their secret history of the marriage. She knew he must have his own history of her, everything from the cinnamon-flavored chapstick she used on her lips in the winter, the smell of her shampoo when he nuzzled the back of her neck, that nuzzle didn't come so often now but still came, to the click of her computer at two in the morning on those two or three nights a month, when sleep for some reason jilted her. Now it was 27 years, or she had amused herself figuring this one day using the calculator function on her computer, 9,855 days, almost a quarter of a million hours and over 14 million minutes. Of course, some of that time he'd been gone on business, and she'd taken a few trips herself, the saddest to be with her parents in Minneapolis after her kid sister, Brandilyn, had died in a freak accident. But mostly they had been together. Did she know everything about him? Of course not. No more than he knew everything about her. How she sometimes, mostly on rainy days or on those nights when the insomnia was on her, gobbled Butterfingers or Baby Ruths, for instance, eating the candy bars, even after she no longer wanted them. Even after she felt sick to her stomach. Or how she thought about the new mailman was sort of cute. There was no knowing everything, but she felt that after 27 years, they knew all the important things. It was a good marriage one of the 50% or so that kept working over the long haul. She believed that in the same unquestioning way she believed that gravity would hold her to the earth when she walked down the sidewalk until that night in the garage. And even when she discovers that her husband is a notorious serial killer, she does so in a darkly humorous fashion. If she just got up to change the television this wouldn't have happened. Instead, she worked extra hard to root through the garage to find batteries for the remote. When she finds the sexually explicit pornographic magazine, King offers up another great look at marriage. Um... And he writes, a marriage was like a house under constant construction, each year seeing the completion of new rooms. A first year marriage was a cottage, one that had gone on for 27 years, was a huge and rambling mansion. There were bound to be crannies and storage spaces, most of them dusty and abandoned, some containing a few unpleasant relics you would just as soon hadn't found. But that was no biggie. You either threw those relics out or take them to goodwill. The discovery of the murder box come next, and King nails it out of the park. We are right along with Darcy here, so when she discovers the IDs of random women in a hidden box, our thoughts turn to the worst as well. King then introduces us to the Beatty murders, giving us snapshots of horrific murders straight out of a Stephen King story. The violence committed to the victims, with a taunting, enthusiastic notes are aspects of a murderer that we've seen before in king's works whether it have come from the hands of george stark or randall Flagg. the fact that the is in the murder style is so familiar serves to help assist his efforts in promoting the concept of the story what if a wife realized her husband was a famous serial killer when darcy discovers the truth about bob king goes out of his way to ensure he doesn't make it easy for her remember this is someone you've been married to for decades You just don't decide to call the police. She contemplated suicide, but thinks that without her as a tether, Bob will only kill more women. She's conflicted in going forward for selfish reasons. It would ruin her daughter's wedding. The great unknown of this novella is what happens next. Now that she knows what happens next. I don't think any of us expected King to remain committed to the focus of marriage over the murderous, sensational aspect that Darcy has just discovered. In the hands of another writer, I would expect it to be about secrets and madness, Darcy existing in a world of growing paranoia and fear. I don't think any of us expected the next step to be a conversation between a husband and wife about the husband's murdering spree. It's a texture that grounds the story story in a frighteningly recognizable reality. Bob knows his wife too well to know that um, that she's found his secret, and when he brings it up, it's completely unexpected. He comes clean and places her in the worst situation to keep quiet if he promises to stop. Darcy resigns herself to living a life of normalcy that now includes the knowledge that her husband is a monster. And we have this on page 336 to 337. The sun came up the next day, and the next. A week went by, then two, then a month. They resumed their old ways, the small habits of a long marriage. She brushed her teeth while he was in the shower, usually singing some hit from the 80s in a voice that was on key, but not particularly melodious, though she no longer did it naked meaning to step into the shower as soon as he's vacated it. Now she showered after he'd left for B and a If he knows this little change in her modus operandi, he didn't mention it. She resumed her book club, telling the other ladies and the two retired, retired gentlemen who took part that she had been feeling under the weather and didn't want to pass a virus along with her opinion on the new Barbara Kingsolver, and everyone chuckled politely. A week after that, she resumed the knitting circle, Nuts for Knitting, Sometimes she caught herself singing along with the radio when she came back from the post office or grocery store. She and Bob watched TV at night, always comedies, never the forensic crime shows. He came home early now. There had been no more road trips since the one to Montpelier. He got something called Skype for his computer, saying he could look at coin collections just as easily that way and save on gas. He didn't say it would also save on temptation, but she didn't have to. She watched the papers to see if Marjorie Duval's ID showed up, knowing if he had lied about that, he would have lied about everything. But he didn't. It didn't. Once a week, they went out to dinner at one of Yarmouth's two inexpensive restaurants. He ordered steak and she ordered fish. He drank iced tea and she had a cranberry breeze. Old habits died hard. Often, she thought, they don't die until we do. In the daytime, when he was gone, she now rarely turned on the television. It was easier to listen to the refrigerator with it off and the small creaks and groans of their nice Yarmouth house as it settled towards another Maine winter. It was easier to think, easier to face the truth. He would do it again. He would hold off as long as he could. She would gladly give him that much, but sooner or later, Beatty would gain the upper hand. He wouldn't send the next woman's ID to the police, thinking that might be enough to fool her, but probably not caring if she saw through the change in M.O. Because he would reason she's part of it now, She'd have to admit she knew. The cops would get it out of her even if she tried to hide that part. Donnie called from Ohio. The business was going great guns. They had landed an office products account that might go national. Darcy said, hooray, and so did Bob, cheerily admitting he'd been wrong about Donnie's chances of making it so young. Petra called to say that they had tentatively decided on blue dresses for the bridesmaids, A-line, knee-high, matching chiffon scarves. And did Darcy think that was all right, or would outfits like that look a bit childish? Darcy said that she thought they would look sweet, and the two of them went on to to a discussion of shoes, blue pumps, which three quarter inch heels to be exact. Darcy's mother got sick down in Boca Grande and it looked like she might have to go to the hospital, but then they started on her on some new medication and she got well. The sun came up and the sun went down. The paper jack-o'-lanterns in the store windows went down and the paper turkeys went up. Then the Christmas decorations went up. The first snow flurries appeared right on schedule. In her house, after her husband had taken his briefcase and gone to work, Darcy moved through the rooms, pausing to look into the various mirrors often for a long time, asking the woman inside the other world what she would do. Increasingly, the answer seemed to be that she would do nothing. From there, Darcy witnesses Bob easily slide into his normal rhythms while she can't get the murders out of her mind. This comes to a head in one of King's most memorable endings of all time. When he's drunk, She unexpectedly pushes him down the stairs, and King captures the complex emotional currents that would sweep through an act like this. Yes, she has just murdered her husband, her murderous husband, but he was still her husband, and they had lived an entire life together. The death itself is emotionally complex, but Darcy isn't going to have an easy time readjusting now that the deed is done. She's visited by Detective Holt Ramsey, who knows that Bob had been the killer, and their conversation is such a classic cat and mouse, filling up time before he can pounce on her with the truth. It's a great conversation, with both of them speaking as honestly as they can, without Darcy actually speaking um, the honest truth. Alright guys, now um, it's time for Stephen Kingisms. Uh, first is the catchphrase. We all know Stephen King loves his catchphrases and the first of which is upright and sniffing the air. Uh, the second is twinners and secret worlds. Uh, Darcy thinks about her time as a child imagining that the girl on the other side of the mirror was another person altogether from another world. This reinforces the themes <clears throat> of secret lives that <coughs> are present in this novel but also speaks of his concept of Winning, uh, explored in the Talisman Black House in the Dark Tower series. And number three is the retired detective still on the case. Holt Ramsey shows up just four years before King introduces the world to Bill Hodges, the star of Mr. Mercedes. And lastly, guys, we have Easter Eggs, the first of which is Castle Rock. Castle Rock, Maine is mentioned. Number two, Shawshank uh, Prison is mentioned. And number 19. Uh, Bob coached the Little League, and one year they lost the District 19 tourney, and the number 19 has um, a lot of significance to long-term fans of the Dark Tower. So guys, about this particular story, um, I think that King really saved the best for last on this one. This is a, an incredible examination of marriage filtered through a Stephen King story. You know what I mean? So, I mean, this has so many truths and authentic beats. It feels very honest. Their marriage feels very, very lived in. Um, he has a lot to say about what makes a marriage, and he happens to do it while spinning a story. So he's combining two different things, the secret life of a serial killer with the everyday marriage, and both aspects of the story are done so, so well. Uh, A good marriage is one of the greatest things that he's ever written, which is why it pains me, pains me, guys, uh, to kind of give you a heads up on next week's episode where I review the adaptation of A Good Marriage, where um, if this story is one of the greatest things that he's written then A Good Marriage, the adaptation is one of the worst adaptations ever to be filmed from a Stephen King story. So... Make sure you check in next week to get my full review of that. And in the meantime, guys, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-N spells Stephen King and do my time!